0: rock a baby, daddy's awake When he comes home, hard cider, he'll swig When he has swug, he'll fall in a still And down will come Tyler and Teppie Once, the multitude begins to take an interest in the labors of the mind. It discovers that a good way to acquire fame, power, or wealth is to excel in one or another of them. The restless ambition to which equality gives rise immediately avails itself of this and all other opportunities. The numbers of people who cultivate the sciences, literature, and the arts become immense. The world of the intellect becomes prodigiously active, as each individual seeks to blaze a new trail and attract the attention of the public. What happens is similar to what is happening in political society. Of the United States, the works produced are often imperfect, but their numbers is countless. And while the results of each individual effort are usually quite insignificant, the overall results are always very substantial. Well, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be jumping into Volume Two of *Democracy in America* by Alexis de Tocqueville. So specifically, we'll look at Volume Two, Part One. Um, Now, uh, in the previous episodes, we looked at Volume. Uh, volume one of democracy in america which involved mostly with political uh political culture uh the question of whether democracy could endure what were the foundations institutionally and all that good stuff um some really great stuff in that part about his overall thesis but also what he saw as the major threats and benefits of a democratic society and, and the question that was on european people's minds at the time and that was could this experiment um, not just in republicanism, but by the 1830s, in democracy, survive in America. And he's got his criticisms, his pessimisms, and his optimism for it. Uh, that section also looked at his views of empire and race. But when we get into Volume Two of Democracy in America, it's in four parts, and it, it's 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 like you're you're jumping into a different world in a way, because he jumps to the intangible, and he deals with the intangible aspects of American democracy. Uh, He gets away from the material conditions and start to look at, you know, what kind of philosophy do Americans engage in? What kind of art? What kind of poetry? What kind of theatrics? What kind of political oratory? Uh, What are their sentiments? What are their mores? What are their viewings on gender and childhood and, and all these different aspects that are really part of a democratic culture? And it's the kind of thing you grapple with if you spend any time abroad and you, you know, you meet people from other cultures and you know they don't understand you or you don't fully understand them and at some level it comes down to these these mores right it's not enough to understand the constitution uh, or even to understand American history these are aspects that are sometimes hard to to quantify but are so essential to um, American kind of self-identity I think now I will say that throughout volume two of Democracy in America we find Tocqueville Leveling more criticisms and more of his concerns about what democracy will mean. I mean, let me just try to give you the what I think the general argument is throughout this period, especially in the in part one, what we're going to look at today, which is called the influence of democracy on the evolution of the American intellect, which is all about basically philosophy and and arts and and letters and that kind of stuff. It's that democracy has kind of a like, everything kind of moves down to the lowest common denominator right things become about market it becomes commodified ideas become what can sell rather than what's true there's kind of a a banality and a generality to american ideas banality in that no one really strives for the heights of of artistic achievement that you might find in aristocratic societies but um there's also kind of a generality to it all a, a a, it's like full of platitudes. He really thinks about this in terms of like political oratory that Americans are really good at political speeches and, and speaking to the people, but they speak in in these broad platitudes that don't really say anything. It's the same with philosophy and religion, which just kind of rests on general principles rather than specifics and rather on, on bold heights. So it's a kind of a middling ground. It's almost like the, the most... If you want to look at it cynically, and I think Tocqueville does at times, it's the most marketable um, idea, the one that's easiest to sell, the one that's least likely to offend. Like imagine the salesperson meeting you um, on the, and he talks about salespeople from time to time here as examples. Imagine you meet the salesperson and the salesperson uh, wants to sell you something and you chat first, right? Of course, he's going to agree with what you say. He's going to say things that don't offend. He'll make statements about politics that are kind of middling. If he does get into politics, he'll probably avoid that. Or about philosophy, you know, that don't really take any firm positions. And then instead you find terms like equality or even democracy or, or, or freedom getting thrown around, which of course are, are totally meaningless outside of any specific context, right? Of course, Southerners that were defending our freedom... During the Civil War, um, with Southern slaveholders, and you say we were defending our freedom, despite keeping people enslaved, and that's an outcropping of this this banality of intellectual culture in America. But it's this section, this part one of volume one, I think is one of the most interesting aspects in the entire book, and one I'll come back to. I will say something about the structure of this um, part is that, and this is true of all of all of Volume 2 of, of Democracy in America, is it's a lot of short chapters. So this is a little bit less than 100 pages, and it's it's in 20 chapters. And some of these, 21 chapters, actually. And some of these are, are a page long or half a page or just a few pages. So, um, you know, I'm not going to necessarily go through and talk about each of these, but I'm going to give you the general idea of what he says. But he is... Um, Cause, and then he kind of repeats himself a lot because he, he sees the same kind of general principles in many different areas of academic inquiry, at least as they manifest in America. I mean, I guess you could say that what's important in American philosophy and American um, intellectual traditions is if an idea can be bought or if an idea can be sold. Um, that might be the crudest way of looking at it. Well, he starts with philosophy, and he basically observes that there's no great philosophical traditions coming out of America. And, you know, I think this hasn't changed significantly since this time. I mean, we got William James and pragmatism, and, you know, I don't know if there's any other big schools, maybe some of the civil society stuff more recently um some technology philosophy I mean the, the whole situation has become more global now but you know the major American contribution to philosophy has been William James and, and pragmatism and it's a very ends up being a very American uh, approach to philosophy right kind of looking at the debates in Europe about truth is kind of you know, meaningless of course William James essentially argues that what works is true um, um, now another thing here is that, he goes a little bit deeper here, and he thinks that the Americans basically believe that there's nothing beyond intelligence, or that intelligence is self-sufficient. That's the word he uses, self-sufficient. So there's no need for philosophical speculation beyond what intelligence can achieve or 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 realize. So um, kind of the, the he talks about like they use Descartes because Descartes kind of justifies their empiricism but the actual method of descartes is not that interesting to to an american um, philosophically anyways um, uh, he then moves on to this to talk about uh general belief and he sees that americans just have a lack of faith in in others and therefore aren't really interested in a lot of philosophy and philosophical systems because what it comes down to is they don't really trust others to make decisions for them it's just this overall lack of faith in in what other people might say. Um, Quote, when a man who lives in a democratic country compares himself individually to the people around him, he feels with pride that he's equal to each of them. But when he contemplates his fellow man as a group, he sees himself in relation to that great body. He is immediately overwhelmed by his own insignificance and weakness. The same equality that makes him independent of each of his fellow citizens in particular leaves him isolated and defenseless against the actions of the majority. And here it's even referring to Ideas. So there's a tendency in democracies for ideas to kind of draw to the mean, to kind of what's what's acceptable and what's self-evident and what's practical. And that kind of sums up most of what happens in this this part, even though it, it goes on for another you know 80 pages detailing all this in different fields. But that's that's really the main idea. Uh, chapter three is on general ideas, and here he he just says that general ideas are weak general ideas are kind of there's kind of a feebleness to them because they are essentially platitudes and if you know they're, they're just broad statements but they're really attracted to americans for that very reason and i you know in tocqueville's mind of course the whole system of democracy in america relies on a, a basic generality which is easy to understand and that is that all men are Alike, Each is born with an equal right to liberty, which is something even like the Greeks and Romans, it even evaded them and their, their pursuits. Um, so what does he say here? Uh, a person who lives in a democratic country sees, only, sees around him only people more or less like himself, so he can't think of any segment of humanity without enlarging or expanding his thought until it embraces the whole of mankind end quote so we like democracy everyone else must like democracy i like ice cream who couldn't like ice cream you know baseball is the greatest game ever so why don't the chinese play it that's that's the kind of the the logical extent of this kind of perspective because if you do see truth in these general principles they're they're that's only useful if they're universally applicable and of course they never are and and that's kind of where he finds a bit of distaste for american philosophy I will say throughout this, he thinks American art and letters and and intellectual culture is very prolific. It, it produces a lot, but it produces nothing really memorable, right? Um, and he gets his way with the, art, with the, the artisan culture or the the uh, writing, you know, literature. That there's a lot of novels being written, but no novel that anyone's going to remember a few, you know, later. So I, I don't know where you would put like someone like Cooper into that. I mean, who, who else was popular at the time? Charles Brockton Brown we did a series on him. There's a few others, but you know, by 1830, it's before the American Renaissance, so there's not really any clear ty- titans of American letters for him to, to point to, certainly not in philosophy. So he is working from a bit of a desert. Had he wrote written this later, maybe he'd have come to different conclusions. But I think some of this still stands up um, in kind of just that overall practicality, the pragmatism of American philosophy there's really a, a dialogue to be had with William James in regards to, to these arguments Tocqueville's making. So next we have a few chapters on, on religion. And these are, um, he basically makes three or four conclusions about religion here. One is um, like philosophy, religion in America is gonna be practical, it's gonna be independent, and it's gonna be general. So um, um, that's just an extension of what he's been saying overall. Right, American religions—we've already established as independent that it's outside of the state that he talked about in part one. But he goes on here to talk about kind of the generality of of religious values in the U.S. I mean, for instance, there's no need to have a deep philosophical understanding of the theology beyond the existence of God. Right, God is just something we feel; it's something we experience. Of course, he exists, right, because everyone kind of agrees, um, and that's that's that. Um, He goes a little bit farther here, seeing that there is a function of of, of religion and democracy to be a bit of a tempering force. Uh, When we think about like the the temperance movement and some of the reform movements of the antebellum period, there might be something to that. He writes, the chief business of religion is to purify, regulate, and restrain the overly ardent and exclusive desire for well-being that man feels in ages of equality. But I think it would be a mistake for them to try to subdue it completely and destroy it. They would not succeed in dissuading men from love of wealth. But they may yet persuade him not to enrich himself with others than, than less than other than honest means. As men become more alike and more equal, they become increasingly important for religion not only because to remain studiously aloof from the daily course of business, but also to avoid unnecessary conflict with generally accepted ideas and with the enduring interests of the mass, masses, because common opinion seems increasingly to be the foremost of power and the most irresistible. You know, I almost think about this, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you know, the. When i grew up you know i always went to church on sunday and, and belief was just taken for granted it, and sermons were full of platitudes i mean that's i don't remember any profound theology coming from there we we're talking about luther and calvin and, and for things like that it's just you went to church you wore your suit you kind of of course you believed in god and in kind of broad statements but it's you know it it didn't have like the real meat and when i studied history then I started saying, wow, this kind of religion is kind of interesting. Of course, by then I had turned away from religion by studying it, but I became more interested in actual theological arguments and, and especially um, Calvin. But it wasn't a part of really my, my upbringing. Um, so kind of a practical, almost a social or ethical, moral um, guidelines than, than theological, doctrinal, doctrinal religion. He makes a really interesting case about Catholicism. I don't think he's, he was right about this. I'm, or I'm not sure how I would justify But he does think that Americans would move towards Catholicism. My understanding is Catholicism came into America largely because of immigrants from Catholic countries brought it with them. But he thinks Americans would be attracted to the governing order of, of Catholicism, right? kind of the administrative centrality of Catholicism. Well, what is it about it? Well, it's it's for him. It's this great unity. While the Protestants have all their different squabbles about theology, the Catholics just have this broad unity. So it's like, again that generality, and that you you kind of have this broad principle. You got the Pope, you got the organization, but it, you know beyond that, it's just kind of a general set of traditions and and customs. And he saw something in that that reflected what democracy. And I, you know, it's only one page literally that he does this, but you know, there there might be. Um, more to more to say about that in, in some other context um he also thinks pantheism would take off in america of course pantheism is the belief that god is in everything and of course that's just the ultimate of of a general religious belief right to just say god is in everything you know he's out there in nature he's he's in my heart i'm part of god you don't get any more general than that so obviously that's why he thinks that's that would be attractive to Americans the last part of religion that he brings up here though is the tendency of American religions to believe not in the Fallen man, but in the perfectible man, right? This is really key to the reform movements of the antebellum period and the the second great awakening Right. Well, the First Great Awakening was more fire and brimstone, you know, sinners at the hands of an angry god, this more Calvinist um, type of approach. But by the Second Great Awakening, it was all about the perfectibility of society, of man. And of course, you need that in a democracy, right? In a democracy where laws are unstable, where things are constantly changing. And this overall perfectibility is is something that runs throughout this this whole book. He even talks at one point about, uh, talks to a sailor who, Asking why are the ships made in America so bad, and he's like, "Well, there's going to be a new model next year, so why do we invest in making a, a ship that's going to be great? We're just going to replace it, right? which is kind of kind of fascinating." Um, so that's his bit overview overview on relig- his arguments about religion. It's perfectibility. It's it's general, practical, and of course independent of of any governing authority. But that itself makes the Catholic Catholic order and. You know maybe a bit attractive in a democracy so i feel at this point i'm just going to keep repeating myself so i don't know how much i'm going to go through but i do do want to highlight the different aspects he he talks about he has several chapters devoted to like the arts and sciences and technology and the general argument here is you're going to get practical science uh, you're going to get uh, you're not going to have great scientists but you're going to have a lot of people a lot of tinkerers a lot of people engaged in scientific work um, a lot of people, but that science scientific work is going to be very practical. It's going to be like the inventor or the tinkerer. Um, and you're actually going to end up with a whole lot of scientific productivity in America, but you're not going to have that like the Isaac Newton kind of figure who's going to unlock brand new ideas in, in physics or chemistry or something. That's, that's going to come out of aristocratic cultures. What you get instead in America is this endless strain of practical applications of science and, and practical arts. He's got a really great section here. It's actually chapter 11 of, of part one called, basically, on the spirit of the arts. Yeah, it's called, In What Spirit Americans Cultivate Their Art. And, um, you know, the whole section is, is actually quotable here. He writes uh, The democratic social state and institutions also impart certain distinctive tendencies to all the imitative arts, tendencies that are easily pointed out. They commonly discourage portraits of the soul and encourage portraits of the body, and they substitute representations of movement and sensation for that of feeling and ideas. Finally, in place of the ideal, they put in the real. I doubt that Raphael produced an elaborate study of the intricate workings of the human body as do the draftsmen of today. He did not attach the same importance as they do to rigorous exactitude in this respect because he aspired to surpass nature. He sought to make man something superior to man. He understood to embellish beauty itself. so that's that's a general idea about science. And again, it, it you know all these arguments, all these little essays he has are connected on this this overall theme of of uh, this kind of middling nature of intellectual traditions. Uh, he's got a section on why Americans can't have really awesome monuments. Uh, a lot here on on literature. It's instead really uh, I think it's chapter fourteen here where he says basically literature in America is an industry and it's mass produced. So when you look at one of the most important outputs of American literature, in my view at least, would be the pulp magazines of the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, up until even at, uh, the post World War II period. You know that's that's mass produced, really a lot of it. You know, and there's some reason we don't remember a lot of it, or a lot of it's not recorded or, or or studied. Some of it's been good though, right? There's a few jewels in there, but it's a lot of mass produced schlock, right? But there's people like that schlock, right? You, you watch um, you know, people on YouTube reviewing old bad movies from the 70s and 80s, right? There's, there's kind of an art to the schlock and, and Americans. So I kind of like that. I can't imagine Europeans getting that same kind of fondness for um, um, that kind of mass produced drivel. Um, but there is kind of an art to it. Um, uh, he talks about the effect of, of America on English. Um, again, you get the, the turn towards general terms for things. And the replacing of the words of caste and status—that's of course part of democracy, right? You, you replace the word master with boss or something like that. But he also sees something more destructive, and that's the rise of abstract language and abstract words. Um, as always, that's kind of the, the, the pitfall of, of generality is abstraction, and abstraction is, is dangerous in his view. Um, as with poetry, it's the same thing. You—the themes are lo- are fewer. Uh, Americans will tend to write poetry about fewer themes. He mentions they don't write about nature. Um, you know, I don't know what. He, you know, of course, he doesn't have Robert Frost, and, and and I do think American poets write about nature from time to time. But at his time, apparently, he didn't think they did. Um, but they reduce the themes. Themes, but they kind of aggrandize them, and they make the scale larger. They kind of gigantize them. And again, it's it's kind of they take something that's kind of small and, and make it general. All right. And that's that's the whole sin of American philosophy and intellect in this whole section of the book is they take something that's small and just make it everything and, and make it that's this kind of making things general. Um, same with oration, um, the kind of the pompous speeches. It's, it's like with the poetry. It's like a vast scale on nothingness, the vast scale of nothingness. Um Theater, uh, theaters. The, the section on theaters, chapter 19, is one of the more interesting because he he does think theater, even in Europe, is one of the more democratic of the art forms, and um, so it's kind of like that. In that case, there's more of a common ground, perhaps. But he sees the same kinds of conclusions, a tendency towards platitudes and and banality. Uh, chapter 20 is about history, and as a historian, I, I have to maybe focus on that a little bit more. Um, at first, I thought, is he going to talk about bottom-up history here? Because he says, well, American historians aren't interested in the great man. I'm like, well, when I hear that, I say, well, the alternative to the great man is history from below. But that's not really where he goes. This is He's, he's not seeing like a history from below or from the common man necessarily. Instead, what you see are laws of nature or uh, explanations of history through big trends, big global trends, or, or, or like the mass of shifting of the glaciers. Uh, that's driving history. Of course, we understand the reason there's not the focus on the great man, right? That's offensive to a democratic culture. Um, but instead, you get the, the kind of the, the broad trends, the wheels of history just turning. Um, he writes, when all trace of the action of individuals on nations is lost, it's common to see change in the world without being able to discover any driving force behind that change since it becomes quite difficult to identify and analyze the various factors which, acting separately on the will of each citizen causes an entire people to undergo change. It is tempting to believe that the change in question is not voluntary and that societies are unwittingly obedient to superior forces which dominates them." And that that's, he thinks is a danger. He thinks there's a space for great man history and to, to, to throw it all away for kind of the, the, the broader wheels of history is, is to lose actually explanatory power. And, and that's what he thinks the danger is. And so we see here in this section, it's part one, about 100 pages. So it's a big chunk of the overall book, but it's all coming back to these same themes of American, the American mind having a fascination for banality, generalities, platitudes, broad statements, and uh, maybe overly ripe oratory and, and rhetoric covering up a lack of actual intellectual sophistication. Uh, but what it makes up for in that is, is maybe an output in productivity and, and how things become industries and how everyone's kind of involved in it. Um, so I don't know. I think it's pretty easy to understand. Um, but there might be aspects of this that you don't agree with or, or think I'm misreading. So if you read Tocqueville and you have your own thoughts about it, please leave your thoughts below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. In the next episode, we'll look at part two of volume two, which is called The Influence of Democracy on the Sentiments of Americans. It's a rather short section, but I think this one deals um, with uh, civic organizations and individualism. So we're going to have to, even though it's a shorter section, we might have to take a little bit more time walking through that because his definition and his feelings about individualism and egoism are very, very key to unlocking his whole, whole narrative. So um, that's it for now. Uh, thanks as always for listening and I will see you next time with that'll be part six of my review of Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. rock a baby When you awake You will discover Old Tip is a fake Far from the battle, a war cry and rum. He sits in his cabin drinking that rum.